Welcome everyone to another episode of WA This Week and look again, uh, we're live today so if you have any questions uh, then please make sure you send those in and I'll do my best to answer those uh, at the end of a, just a brief presentation on a couple of issues. Again, look, you know, action-packed. Um, we've had all of the uh, drama of the voice referendum and then uh, the fallout of that and uh, all of the claims by the left that apparently it was a victory um, for them and, uh, you know, trying to rewrite history on all of that. But look, I'm not going to cover that this week. I think there's been plenty of discussion on that. I want to co cover a, a couple of um, local issues and key issues. Look, first of all, um, I do want to congratulate my colleague, the Honourable Peter Collier, for the good work he's doing in holding the state government to account on the absolute debacle around uh, Banksy at Hill uh, and then uh, just the, the, the horror of this young boy committing uh, suicide and ultimately dying or trying to commit suicide and then ultimately dying from his injuries. Um, a young boy that was being held in Unit 18 uh, at the adult, at Casuarina uh, Prison, at the adult jail. Now, look, I understand that, you know, there can be a need for detention uh, of youth, and we shouldn't be too um, pie-eyed about all of this. Um, whilst there are, you know, these are young people, some of them commit really egregious crimes and can be very difficult to manage, but they're youths. And we all know that young people, you know, all of us, I know in my youth I did foolish things and uh, hopefully, well, none of it should have come under the purvey of the law, but nevertheless, you know, equally young people do get themselves involved in activity. And, of course, in the case of the children that makes you ill, many of those children effectively haven't been parented in their lives, come from highly dysfunctional, traumatised backgrounds. The aim is with youth to try and rehabilitate them now, we understand from media reports that this young boy was being held in his prison cell in an adult uh, prison 23 out of 24 hours a day, day after day. That, that's inhuman. And as I say, I'm not pie-eyed on this one. I don't pretend that, you know, these cases are all trivial and just with a bit of love and care that somehow or other the, you know, the, the, the situation for that, that young boy could have been turned around. Nevertheless with the appropriate trained specialist care in a facility built for youth, um, you'd have to think that there's a much greater chance of rehabilitation for that for that young man instead of him being put into the situation he was in. And it, it reflects the failure of this state government. They, you know, we've heard every credible uh, agency that has anything to do with youth, um, the, uh, you know, the current commissioner for children, the former commissioner, uh, all of them have said that, that it, it's untenable to hold those children in that adult jail and they must be accommodated in Bankshire Hill uh, in an appropriate setting and with appropriate security, um, and that hasn't happened. I think that it reflects the failure of this government in law and order overall. I'm not going to go down a detailed path on law and order, but if you look at any major criminal uh, area of criminal activity, they've all got materially worse under this Labor government and, and the great tragedy here that is that this young man is, is taken, well, effectively taken his own life and ultimately died of injuries uh, from a suicide attempt. And, um, you know, heartbreaking that that young life has been ended and hasn't been turned around. And, 
as I say, I'm, I uh, congratulate my colleague, uh, Peter Collier, for the good work that he's doing pursuing the government on this. Um, and this isn't some new thing, you know, um, he's had experience in this uh, as a minister and, you know, in a previous coalition government and knows the issues and knows that things can be done differently and this government is simply failing to do that. Another area, you know, you look at the key areas that government needs to manage. You know, if you, you typically, if you look at the assessment of government, it's in the areas of, of health, law and order, and education. Let's look at education. We have a situation now where we have, you know, a good number of schools. We've got teachers out there who haven't even finished their qualifications, haven't even completed their training. Now, it doesn't mean they're not good people. I have great respect for the teachers in our education system. But just imagine them being thrown in the deep end, uh, having to take classrooms full of, of, of students when they haven't even been able to complete their training. Uh, you know, there are two aspects to this. I'm certain it must be distressing for a good number of those young teachers going out when they don't, uh, you know, they're not fully prepared for the work that they're having to do. But equally for those students... It can't be good for the students being put in that situation as well. And I'll, I'll reflect on the previous um, coalition government. You know, under the uh, Barnett-led uh, coalition government, over the eight years, in every single year, every single child who went to a government school had a fully qualified teacher at the front of the classroom at the start of the year. Now, you might think, so what? Well, so what is that during that time, the state's population increased by around 500,000 people. Vastly more uh, people came that are coming into the state at the moment uh, over that period of time. And yet despite that, uh, and despite all of the challenges that presented, including building a raft of new schools to cut with that massive increase in population, every single classroom had a fully qualified teacher in front of them at the start of the year and obviously through the year as well. Under this Cook Labor government, simply failing to do that, they're pretending uh, that, oh, they've got this under control by putting out those, those um, partially trained teachers before they've completed all of their training in those classrooms. It's an absolute failure, and it's a failure of government that they haven't uh, been able to do that. And, and we see this shortage right across the public sector. might say despite, we'll talk about, we'll talk about this at some stage, um, massive increase in the public service under the Cook Labor government. So they've massively increased the public service really dramatically. And Kelly say they've done this, played this little trick of saying that they're not increasing uh, salaries and they were being prudent. But what they did was they increased all of the job grades. So we saw a massive increase in the bill for public service, and yet they are completely unable to provide one of the key critical parameters for government or the key critical services for government, and that is fully trained teachers in front of all the classrooms. So that is a, uh, that is a major, major fail. What have we seen in regional areas? Utterly inadequate housing. When we see this government completely fail to maintain government housing in regional areas and to provide sufficient government housing. So you've got teachers going to these areas. They're living in caravans and caravan parks. Just imagine you're a, you're a teacher gone out and you're trying to uh, present yourself in a professional way, but day in, day out, um, you're having to uh, get ready, uh, you know, from a from a, a caravan park. It's com a complete failure on this government's part. 
then you can sort of see there's building a bit of a theme here in terms of this government. The you know, and that is we've got a government that is is failing on all of the major things it needs to do, whether it's health, whether it's law and order, whether it's education, in every case. Tell me what's improved under the under this McGowan and then Cook Labor government. Because I think you'll be struggling for a long time to tell me anything. It's a hallmark of the government. You know, they are brilliant on spin. I've said this many times. Boy, they can tell a tale. You know, if they were making, uh, if, if telling tall stories was uh, going to help the people of the state, we'd be in good fettle. But um, they're great at spinning a tale, not so good at delivering the critical services. And I'll get on to health. Um, uh, the, some of you may have seen, and I think this is uh, something for everyone to take a keen interest in, is the government's captain's call on location of the Women and Babies Hospital uh, to Murdoch University, so King of Memorial Hospital. It's an old building. I've said in other forums, I'm not so sure that that, that building couldn't have been maintained. Uh, but in any case, the decision has been made that that, that that hospital has to be moved. Now, at the moment, the King Edward Memorial Hospital is only a few minutes uh, from the Perth Children's Hospital. Uh, and what does that mean? What it means is that when there are serious uh, issues with, with the mother, and in particular when there are serious issues with newborn babies, they're only a few minutes away uh, from the top experts uh, who can carry out the very complex surgery and medical intervention that in particular those little babies need to live. Um, now, the uh, previous uh, government made a decision that that should be co-located, uh, the, the new uh, Women and Babies Hospital should be co-located with the uh, Children's Hospital. Why? Because that's where the expert paediatric surgeons are. And paediatric surgeons don't grow on trees. Paediatric surgeons uh, require decades of detailed training to do these very complex surgeries. There are only a handful of women in Australia and there are only a small number in, in Western Australia. What has this Cook Labor government done? They made a captain's call to relocate the new Women and Babies Hospital at Fiona Stanley on the Murdoch campus. What that means is, is, is tragically that there is a very high probability that, that newborn babies will die because they will not be able to get the required medical surgery, the intervention they need in time, because all of the key specialists are at the Perth Children's Hospital and the Queen Elizabeth II site. And if there are seriously ill children, they'll need to be transported by ambulance across the bridge all the way through to the Netherlands campus uh, to be treated. Uh, and, and I'm sure many of you would know, seconds count, let alone minutes, let alone the the 15 to 30 minutes, I mean, it's 15 minutes if there's no traffic. It's half an hour or more. Many of you would know who try and get across that bridge every morning. When you've got the, the, the place absolutely gridlocked, how are you going to get babies across to those hospitals? And it's not as if you could have a helicopter on standby at the hospital. I mean, to mobilise a helicopter takes considerable time, you know, an hour or some such thing. So that's what it's going for me. And, and the basis they've used for justifying that is, is absolutely pathetic. Um, it is purely a captain's call. But what we've seen with this Cook Labor government is they love, they just set their jaw. So they come out, they make a decision based on nothing. 
Then they try and subsequently justify it, and that's what they've done here. They've gone through this really tawdry exercise, uh, trying to justify the decision to uh, locate the new women and babies hospital out at uh, out at the Murdoch campus, uh, and uh, and then they just set their jaw and say, "Well, that's what we're doing," and they just quit, keep quoting utter nonsense uh, to justify. And look, I don't have time in this forum. I'll, I'll put some stuff online actually on this because I've gone through it in some detail in Parliament along with my colleagues uh, to outline just how appalling this decision is in terms of consequences. It, you know, it was interesting. They had a group called Infrastructure WA, which is a body set up by the state government apparently to look at uh, infrastructure projects and provide some objective analysis of it. And they had the infrastructure WA went through, and this was post the decision being made, so government tried to justify what they'd done. Post the decision being made, infrastructure WA uh, went through the exercise, and, and I'll just tell you how flimsy that exercise was with one example. They said, oh, we're looking at all the different aspects, but we'll ignore the clinical aspects. Well, isn't that fascinating? Just imagine. It's a hospital. You know, you reckon that the clinical aspects would be at the top of the list, wouldn't you? That's what I'd reckon. This is, is like some tragic, uh, you know, reflection of the uh, episode in Yes Minister. And some of your students of Yes Minister would remember that there was a, the hospital in England that won the best hospital of the year, but they had no patients. Um, and, and that is the same thinking behind this. Imagine saying, I'm doing an analysis of the best two options. I'll just ignore the clinical outcomes. And what we've seen is clinicians, there are, you know, look, when you're in your office and you you're just a you know, humble member of the opposition. You get a bit of correspondence now and then. When this decision was announced initially, my office was inundated uh, with correspondence from clinicians saying this is a fatal decision and that is you will cost children's lives if you allow this to go ahead. And um, that's one of the reasons I've been keen to advocate along with my colleagues um, on this particular topic. But, um, you know... Now we've had three different major clinical groups come out. These are the clinical experts that deal with babies have come out and said, this is an utterly foolhardy decision on the government's part. You must co-locate this women and babies hospital with the Perth Children's Hospital on the QE2 site. And yet the government still set its door, still saying that it won't do it. I do not know what is motivating them. I have a suspicion of what's motivating them. And it's nothing to do with clinical outcomes. Nevertheless... Uh, they uh, are setting their jaw on this. They need to stop. Minister Cook needs to, he's still relatively new in his role as Premier. He needs to make another captain's call, and that is do what's right for the women and babies, not what's right for some other third-party interest. And he needs to get them to come back and reverse that decision. The arguments that have been used against the location of the QE2 site are just absolute nonsense. And as I say, I don't have time to go through the but it is uh, an appallingly bad decision that will cost the lives of children. Uh, and uh, that is an enormous tragedy um, for parents in the state of Western Australia. Um, just a couple of, uh, well, really only uh, one other topic, but this was just topical today. I see in the Western Australia they've reported uh, that Premier Cook has written a letter to the uh, federal government effectively saying they should have a look at the new IR laws or question you know, whether they're going to have an unnecessary impact on industry. Yeah, two weeks ago, I asked Premier Cook, Cook a question in Parliament on this, 
These new federal IR laws are not some benign tweaking. They are a profound uh, change. Um, and, and I won't go through all of that um, because you can read about it, I guess, if you, if you want to. But there's no doubt whatsoever it's going to have a major impact on our resources sector. I think not all of our big miners will be hit by it. Um, look, I've said before, you know, the big companies, they're pretty good at taking care of themselves so they can prosecute their own arguments. But all of those contractors, all small business, I've spoken to a lot of small business, they are really, really concerned about this. It's a bad law. Bad law is when you make criminals of good people trying to do the right thing. And that's what this new federal IR law will do uh, in relation particularly to small and medium-sized business um, outside of affecting the business, the, the ability of businesses to be competitive and to compete for the best people uh, for certain positions. But um, look, I asked Premier Cook then whether he'd write a letter to the uh, federal government and he gave some sort of waffly, you know, put-off answer. Um, you know, no, you know, he didn't have to do that inside. Look, I'm glad he's seen sense. Um, you know, I'm always, uh, it's always good when someone does that. I'm glad he's written to the federal government on that. Um, and I hope he's more strident than, than in, in what is indicated in the media in terms of what is prosecuting an argument for Western Australia, because it'll hit us more than anyone else, and um, particularly in that resources area. Um, but, you know, why did it take so long? This was an overrider. Um, and I might say, and I won't go into it in detail at all here, but exactly the same with the federal court decision, uh, which has stopped effectively uh, put a major roadblock in the way of Woodside Scarborough Gas Project. And uh, boy, let me tell you, if that Woodside Scarborough Gas Project does not go ahead on schedule, uh, everyone in Western Australia is going to uh, feel the impact of that because they are critical to our gas supply, and gas is critical to our electricity supply in the state. And, of course, that gas supply is critical to ma our major overseas customers, in particular Japan and South Korea. So I hope the Premier gets on his uh, gets his pen out and gets his pen out and and uh, writes another letter to you, uh, the Prime Minister, on that. Look, I'm going to finish there. Um, uh, if you've got any questions, uh, if there are any questions there, I'm really happy to answer questions. And uh, otherwise, thank you very much for watching few questions today. Um, well, this is more of a comment. Uh, as a Liberal member, I'm insulted that you're going to give the maths seat to all. Well, um, I'm not giving any seats to anyone in Parliament. Hopefully I'm keeping my own, but uh, we'll go through all of that competitive process in a while. Um, uh, I'm not aware that anyone is suggesting that, and uh, I think there's still some significant water to go under the bridge. Um, Obviously, and well, I don't think this is not revealing anything, um, and that is the Liberal and National Party are obviously in discussions about what arrangements they'll have going into the next state election. You know, we've always worked closely um, with the National Party. You know, when we've been in government, it's always been a coalition. Um, so we'll have to work out some sort of arrangement, but um, uh, what those uh, final arrangements are going to be, um, time will tell. Um Unit 18 needs to go. That's what Peter, Peter Collier wants. How are you meant to rehabilitate people when they're in confinement 24-7? Yeah, look, I, but I absolutely agree. Uh, look, I, you know, as I say, and, you know, it's clear that these kids aren't just sort of ordinary, you know, kids out of ordinary houses typically. They're, they're kids that have had real issues in their lives. But, 
but there can be some enormous behavioural issues that, that can be dangerous to people, um, you know, dangerous to the guards and the prisons and so on. So there needs to be an adequate setting. But, I mean, gosh, be, you know, I don't, I don't care who it is, you know, whether it's a, you know, a, a child or an adult. I mean, you're putting people in solitary confinement effectively uh, 24, you know, or 23 out of 24 hours a day. How is that person ever going to change? How how can that person possibly maintain, in this case, a child who is traumatised in any case, how can they possibly maintain good mental health? Uh, uh, any of us, if any of us were put in that situation, I don't know how, how we would cope. And as I say, you've got children that have come from already traumatised backgrounds in that situation. I, I know it's not simple. I know it's not trivial. But it isn't, you know, inhuman, I think, to do that. Um, those children, yes, it's going to take a lot of resources. Yes, it's going to take a lot of effort. And for some of those children, it's going to take a lot more resources than, than for others. But that's what you do. Look, these kids are under the state's care. And, boy, how wonderful if what you do can actually turn these kids around and give them happy, useful lives. And, again... I'm not some sort of pilot optimist. I know that's not trivial, but you give it every shot. But locking a kid up 23 hours, 24 hours of the day, that ain't giving it every shot. That is just treating a child in an inhuman way. Its role uh, shouldn't be done. Where do you stand on the new firearms law? Um, it's interesting with the new firearm law. Some of you may know, I grew up on a farm. Um I look. I think it, it's. Uh, I think there's a balance here. I'll, I'll tell you in terms of the. Some of you may have seen the detail um, of the bill, but um, what they're effectively saying is that um, for uh, uh, you know for ordinary uh, gun owners, they could have no more than uh, five more weapons. For farmers, they can have more than that. Um, I'll tell you, for all the farmers I knew. Uh, they didn't have more than two or three weapons. I'll tell you, for us on the farm, we had a 22 and a 22 Magnum, which we used for vermin control, you know, for killing stock and distressed stock and things like that, which you have to do on the farm. Um, you know, the, uh, uh, most farms, they'd have something like a 22, a shotgun, uh, and, uh, well, back in the good old days, it was a 303 or they had a 243 or something like that, you know, one of those more high-powered. Uh, weapons, but don't need much more than that. I know on some stations where they've got large stations, you know, covering millions of acres, they've got a lot of people working on the stations. They have to deal with camels and, you know, wild dogs and other vermin, um, you know, as well as, you know, stock where, where, you know, it's traumatic and you have to dispatch uh, animals. Um, you know, they might need more animals. I don't actually think the restrictions will make much difference now. There is one group, uh, there are a couple of groups that can be affected. So people who are members of gun clubs um, and uh, gun owners, I know, and particularly people who are into competitive shooting, um, that, you know, some competitive shooters, as I understand it, you know, they may have up to 20 weapons. That's a particular case. But I think the legislation does have some uh, capacity there for the discretion to be exercised in those particular cases. Um I'll, I'll be going through this bill in detail next week. Um, it's, we've got a week off from Parliament, so I'll be getting ready for the uh, Parliament coming back, and that's one of the bills we'll probably end up debating. So I'll go through that in detail. Um, 
I, 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 so I don't think that this bill is going to have a big impact on the great majority of farmers or, in fact, the great majority of recreational uh, shooters. Look, this banning of the very high-caliber weapons, you know, talk about a farce. I've said Minister Papalea, he makes these great announcements and he loves to get out there with a policeman and a pile of weapons and say how they're stopping crime, and we all know that this has virtually no impact on crime at all. They had this great um, thing a while ago where they're banning high, they're going to ban high-powered weapons, and, and they've got to ban 50 cal, you know, 50 cal rifles. Well, apparently there are three in the state, uh, so not a big pool for the criminals to dip from, and uh, they all, police knew where they were. Do you know what they had to do for their photo shoot? They went and bought a 50 cal. They contributed a 30% increase in the stock of 50 cals in the state by going out and buying a 50 cal for their photo shoot. What a joke. Uh, you know, and, and that, you know, what would a minister do that? It just makes a farce of what he's trying to do. Look, you know, I, I am, uh, you know, with guns, I think, you know, there's a, there's a reasonable argument to say that you need to have adequate gun control. Um, you know, uh, does this law go too far? At first, look, I'll be direct with you. Um, I think it's, it, it's probably not going to have the impact that people fear. Um, but the devil's always in the detail. I know with these issues, it, there are, there'll always be circumstances that are unfair, so certainly I'll be looking at that in relation to that particular aspect of saying whether it's unfair. The, you know, there are some things that happen that really should. One of the things that the gun shop owners were doing was a gun shop owner would go out and buy some farm out in some far distant location that was quite cheap that covered a certain area. And some of you may know you can't load a weapon, you know, above it. Well, you can't load a weapon at all unless you've got a place to use it. So if you don't own a property that's of a suitable size, you have to have a permission letter from a, a property owner to say that you'll use the weapon on that site. But some of these gun shops were actually selling these letters, these permission letters, based on a property they'd bought somewhere. You know, they were selling them for, say, $200 a piece uh, to thousands of people. And, and people who probably didn't have a good reason for owning a gun at all and a lot of very young people who've never had any experience with guns or farms or stock of the like and other members of clubs and so on. Um, and uh, look, I think that was wrong. Um, um, equally, you know, where there are legitimate permission letters and people are getting it. Uh, the other thing is there is some, de there's some administrative detail in this bill, which in terms of will it make it far too onerous for gun owners? Gun owners shouldn't be punished. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing immoral about owning a gun. There's nothing improper about owning a gun. And many people own guns and do that for legitimate purposes. So um, what we don't want to see is a sort of a, a process where the administrative processes are so onerous that effectively you, you're, you're punishing people for owning guns. I don't agree with that at all. You shouldn't punish gun owners. Um where they've got them for, you know, legitimate purposes, and uh, and I'll be making sure that this bill doesn't um, cross that line. Uh, who is your shadow education minister, may I ask? Uh, so our shadow is uh, Donna Farragher, the Honourable Donna Farragher. And uh, can I tell you what an excellent, uh, this is in the Liberal Party, she's our, our uh, spokesperson, and uh, Peter Rundle is the opposition shadow uh, minister for education. Um, both excellent people. Look, I'll talk about Donna because she's of the Liberal Party uh, and she's our spokesperson for this area. 
Then I know that can be a little bit confusing, spokesperson, shadow, but look, we are two separate parties. So, you know, we cover portfolios ourselves as well. Um, but uh, she's an outstanding individual dollar, uh, just very impressive, got a huge background in this area. Can I say particularly for, uh, and especially I might say around the younger people, so does a great job. Um, thoughts on country roads not getting fixed? Yeah, look, it's on. You know, I think I might have spoken about this before, but you know, I come from the bush, a little town called Cranbrook, or I grew up on a farm out west of there. And uh, we've still got that fortunately in the family, so that's a real privilege to be able to go down there and remember my youth. But um, I go down the Albany Highway. I, David Alco Prado, so I can sort of get along okay. I did, you know, when I was a boy, I had a little minivan that I used to get around in. I would just be terrified driving it down the Albany Highway now. It is unbelievable. The, the state of the roads is just, well, the state of that one is just appalling. Many some great scallops, you know, huge lips where the, uh, where the uh, bitumen's been pushed out. No, I'm not kidding. I'm talking about differences in road height of a, you know, say, you know, up to half a metre. And this is on a, you know, on a major highway. And I might say much of that damage is on construction that's carried been carried out in the last two, three, four years. Um, there appears to be some massive degradation in the standard of the road construction. But wherever I go, I, I see the same thing going out. I was at, you know, went out to the weed belt a few weeks ago to go to a country show. Same sort of deal there with the roads. I'm appalled, you know, Western Australia is the, is the wealthiest state in Australia. We account for half of Australia's export income. And a good deal of that income depends on those roads to the uh, regional areas, um, you know, whether it's out to the mining areas or the agricultural area. I think we've got the worst roads in Australia. I think I'd, I'd say that we, you know, the uh, the Great Eastern Highway, that's an appalling road. Uh, and imagine that, boy, you know, a fair percentage of the state's wealth depends on that road and the fair percentage of Australia's wealth depends on that road. And yet it's in an absolutely appalling condition. I don't know what's gone on. Um, uh, with my roads, but uh, and, and we have the state, you know, this Cook Labor government, they boast about their road spending. The state of our roads is appalling and it needs a real focus. A couple of comments on your uh, response on the firearm uh, issue. Uh, my 30 year old sister was a former and unavailed herself with her own gun, important conversation. And the detail needs to be set before the final vote, honest and upfront, as regards to our arms Yeah, look, the devil's always in the detail. It's one of my frustrations, can I say, in Parliament. You'd be surprised how many ministers don't read the bills they're presenting to Parliament. Uh, they are, I don't know whether Minister Papali has read his bill or not. Uh, hopefully he has. Um, but uh, a lot of ministers clearly don't, because when you ask them questions, they don't know what they're talking about. Um, but the devil is always in the detail. And it, it's the, the big fear is the unintended consequences. Look, laws that make criminals of good people are bad laws. So we don't want to see, uh, we don't want to see uh, that happen to others. As I say, there are good reasons why um, many people own guns and they shouldn't be punished or treated unfairly because of it. Uh, do you invest in DLT technology? Well, I don't know uh, what that is, so uh, I don't think so. Look, I'm not a bit, one of the things coming apart. I've been very shy of investing on anything, not that I was ever a great investor. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I think when you come into Parliament, you don't. Uh, if you mean in terms of buying shares, but look, whether I've bought it or not, I'm not sure. So uh, perhaps someone could enlighten me uh, on that one. Yes. Um, how come Woolworths in the airport can trade later, but not in normal subversion? Yeah, look, it's pretty straightforward. It's a Commonwealth, that land is Commonwealth land, so it's controlled by the Commonwealth. So that's why you'd see uh, a number of different operations move onto that land. Sort of a bit of a rot in a way, isn't it, that uh, that can happen, but nevertheless, that could happen. I can tell you, I, uh, I haven't been out to any of the stores out of the airport. I go out there to pick up the kids or, you know, catch a taxi out there to travel myself occasionally, but... Um, I'm not sure how many people are going to travel out there to avail themselves of that, but um, that's why it's Commonwealth land, so it's it's Commonwealth laws, not state laws. How can Australia address productivity challenges? Yeah, it's um, a huge challenge, and you've probably seen this issue of productivity declining. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll go down a little sort of niche avenue on this one. I mean, uh, part of it is that we're going through this so-called green revolution at the moment, you know, the transition to net zero, all of that capital investment uh, is is going to result in zero or even negative productivity. And the history of us, the history of the world and the history of Australia is, is that you invest capital to improve productivity. And at the moment we're going through an exercise where we're investing an enormous amount of capital but we're only replacing what is already there in that we're just transitioning. We're not putting in an improved energy supply or more energy. We're just replacing what is already there. Well, that is, uh, that's why there's a zero productivity gain. In fact, it could well be a negative productivity gain because there are all sorts of cost issues with that uh, transition. So that's a huge problem facing us. And I don't have time to go through it here, but if you look at the magnitude of the capital investment that's required for that transition, it is utterly eye-watering. Um, and I'm not talking about a, a, an estimate made up by someone who hates the idea. I'm talking about capital estimates made up by people who are fervent proponents uh, of that transition. So that's a real challenge for Australia. As we invest more and more and more money in that energy transition, it's going to make it harder and harder. In fact, productive, that will by itself drive productivity in Australia uh, now. Otherwise, you know, the firms, you know, why don't firms invest in, in improving productivity and efficiency of their businesses? Because they're not confident in the future. And I might say, when you've got a Cook Labor government in Western Australia and you've got the absolute left-wing fruit loop, Albanese Labor government in Canberra, a lot of businesses in Australia are going, mm-hmm. I'm not so sure about the future. And they're just um, biding their time uh, in terms of making major capital investments. So it's a real concern. It's why confidence, you know, you you might read in the paper, you talk about business confidence. You think, oh, well, who cares about business confidence? Business confidence impacts all of us because business has to be confident in the future. You know, imagine you're a major gas producer um, and you're looking at investing many, many, billions of dollars in a new gas project and then you have the federal court come in and overturn your government approvals for that project on what a ludicrously flimsy uh, 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 sort of basis, uh, if you like. I know that that, uh, that decision that I'm referring to, the uh, overturning of Seamer's approval of the seismic work for the Scarborough gas project, 
that is having major reverberations all around the resource sector across Australia. And that's harming confidence and that's harming investment to improve productivity. So you've got to have confidence in the future to make these investments uh, to improve productivity around the country. Uh, we have two uh, questions kind of on opposing sides. So I'll just ask the two at the same time. Yeah, sure. So on one platform, we have uh, allowing Woolworths to operate longer hours will destroy local grocers. And on Facebook, we have, uh, we need to change the laws on trading hours. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a mixed issue. I'll, I'll tell you that, that I think I've, I've, well, I think I'm always honest and I try and be direct as possible um, on, on any particular subject. I think that trading hours is a balanced issue. To, to be frank, um, we're spoiled for choice in terms of shopping. I really like those community grocery shops, and I've, I've, I've met with the you know people from the various uh, areas. I'm you know Coleslaw. I guess maybe in the, in the area around me, we're maybe blessed with this, but we've got a real wide choice of of independent grocers, and they provide a fantastic service. Yeah, I will say, you know, if I were to compare what do those big supermarkets put back into the community, uh, the big corporates versus our local green, our, our local independent grocers, those local independent grocers are just fantastic. They just, they are, they support the local schools. They, you know, I go down every so often, I'll be running a bit of a thing to try and say get donations for food charities and things like that. They just always say, yeah, no worries, and they help you, and they put stuff in it themselves, and they are fabulous employers. Look, I haven't got any stats in front of me, but I, my, my sort of rough guess would be that per item sold, those small independent grocers would probably employ two or three times as many people per item sold compared to the big supermarkets. And my, you know, the Coles that I you know, visit down in Claremont Quarter I doggedly go to the uh, to the checkout with a human on it because I want to give someone a job. But you know what? Most of the shoppers there are going through a machine. They don't even see a person. So they do their shopping and they go to a machine. You know, they've had a massive reduction in local employment there. How does that help us? And I haven't seen the grocery prices come down, can I tell you? In fact, um, I'll also say that uh, more often than not, uh, the independent grocers are cheaper than the major supermarkets as well just because they're major... They're, they're duopolies. I mean, Woolworths and Coles, um, they are, that's a duopoly for any of you who've done your high school economics or better. Um, they control the market and uh, they can and do charge what they like. They might have the occasional special, but boy, prices have gone up and up. You know that when you go do your shopping. So, look, I, um, I'm not a sort of a laissez-faire open slather. Just let the big supermarkets wipe out all the independent grocers. It's a balance. Um, look, I do the weekly shop at our house. It's a big shop, uh, so I'm not just sort of theoretical here in terms of having to get things done. I've got, I've never had any trouble, um, you know, getting to the big supermarkets when I need to, and uh, equally, uh, I like to support the smaller grocers, uh, the smaller independent shops when I can as well. And I think the balance is probably about right. I know people think different, but I, I would, I would just honestly, my community would be worse if we lost those smaller independent grocery shops. All right. Well, we'll close off on an uncontroversial question, which is, do you support fracking and nuclear energy? Ah, look, well, um, like all things, I do things, I try and do things based on uh, science and common sense. Um, and uh, look, in both cases, 
Um, one of the things, we're blessed in Australia, you know, I never poke every now that we're in about things that are going on, but uh, we have an outstanding uh, regulatory framework. Um, I'll tell you, for the people who are opponents to fracking, if you are, well, you pretty well would say if you're not going to have any uh, fracturing of uh, rocks in terms of for gas and oil recovery, then you would shut down every gas well and every oil well uh, in Australia uh, because, uh, in fact, all of them require some level of modification to get adequate flows of material out of those wells. Um, done responsibly, which it is done in Australia, I've got no issue with um, fracking. It needs to be done properly and responsibly. Uh, it is done. It is is in Australia, and I think that's well regulated. Um, and uh, what was the second one? Oh, I got so excited about fracking. Uh, oh, nuclear energy. Look, nuclear energy. I'm I'm fine with nuclear energy. It's nuclear energy. That, and again, we've got an excellent regulatory framework. It's safe. My big my issue with nuclear is I get a lot of solicitations from people like, oh, no, we've got to be gangbusters on nuclear energy. That's the solution to every problem. It isn't. Um, nuclear energy is not cheap. Um, you know, it's it's uh, it ha- it suffers from all of the disadvantages in terms of uh, coal, in terms of intermittency. With nuclear power stations, you turn them on, you run them flat out, uh, and you don't want to have your power going up and down. So if you're using it, you know, to try and use a nuclear power station to sort of back up intermittent renewables, mm, that doesn't work so well. Um, look, on the East Coast, um, where 60% of their energy comes from coal, I think there could be a place for nuclear power stations. In Western Australia, I don't think that's going to be the answer here in the near future. Look, you know, and everyone gets the same stuff on the line. People uh, get very excited about small modular reactors, and the concept sounds very exciting. None exist. There's one being built in, well, they've got a project starting in Canada to try and build one. The thing about small modular reactors are they're not one thing. I was I looked at a paper recently, so I do look and study at these things, and there are something like 18 different designs. None of them have actually been built. Some look technically feasible. Some are just pie in the sky. They'll never happen. But the truth is we're probably at least a decade away or more from being able to reliably sort of go, if you like, pluck off the shelf a small modular reactor, and it's probably more than a decade away. So it's not going to help us in the short term. I wouldn't dismiss it as oh, I'm technologically agnostic. And for those people that want to um, get rid of, uh, you know, carbon emissions from hydrocarbon sources, then nuclear is one of the options you could use. So you should look at it. But I think people need to be realistic. It's not available now, particularly the small modular reactors. Any Western Australia, it probably won't make economic sense. On the East Coast, um, in New South Wales and Victoria, it could make economic sense. Then you've got the big barrier, and that is you can be as excited about it as you like. If the community don't accept it, then it isn't going to happen. And so I think there's been a step, you know, there's been some changes in communities' view on it. A lot of people, I think a lot of people now are saying, yeah, we don't mind nuclear so much. When the question is, do you want it in your town? Do you want it near your farm? And so on. People's attitudes sort of go a bit back to the mm, not so sure. So I think there's still a way to go to get community acceptance as well. But clearly the debate's alive and clearly community attitudes are changing. All right, that's the end of it. Thank you very much, everyone. Well, look, thanks very much for listening.